You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tadanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled upon it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree... Let it be done with all diligence. 
Well, I wonder um, if, you, uh, if, if you are not a Christian here today, or maybe you are a Christian, maybe you're someone that uh, calls yourself a follower of Jesus. Um, I wonder uh, what you would say uh, the view is like sitting in the front seat of just watching God work. You've said, oh, look, you know, um, if I got to have a front row seat to see God work in this world, I wonder what you would say that was like. I wonder what you would say you got, you got to see, and I wonder what you would say, how you would describe how it felt. Uh, the text we look at today uh, gives us a front row seat at watching, watching God at work uh, in the lives of his people and also even the emotions and the experiences that they felt uh, in being in their front row seat in the way that he was with them in the rebuilding of the second temple. Now, we mentioned last week, as we are now diving deeper into the book of Ezra, um, we, 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 at the very start, we had a timeline, which hopefully was helpful for you guys to understand where we were at given times. Because if you try to read the book chronologically, it's, a, it's hard. Because there's kings jumping around all over the place. There's things happening that don't seem to happen in order. And that's because... It isn't quite happening in order. Now, we, no we noticed last week that Ezra seems to compile his uh, historical account in some chronological order, but also in themes. Now, last week we saw the theme of opposition and we saw how the, we saw the devil's work in all of his deception to try and stop the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes for his people. We saw the, obst the obstruction that the people had in rebuilding the temple. But we remembered that that was in light of actually seeing the temple. I mean, like, well, they got it done. So we know that God is good for his word. And now we jump into chapters five and six. And rather than seeing what the devil is trying to do to stop God's plans, we get a front row seat on what God is doing in making sure that those plans come to fruition. It's like Jezra was saying, hey, look, let me tell you what happened and why, you know, it sort of took so much time. And, he said, and now we get to chapters five and six. And he's like, hey, guys, let me tell you about what was going on and what God was doing so that it could happen, so that we could see the temple. Uh, this is an amazing account of seeing God's relentless love on show to see his plans complete. It's an amazing show of God's relentless love to see his plans com complete. And we're going to look at God's love today for his people uh, in four different ways. And we're going to see God's love by the confrontation that he has from the confrontation he has before his people. We're going to see God's love in his exhortation towards his people. We're going to see God's love in the construction that he, that he shares with his people. And we're going to see also God's love in the celebration because of God's people. So we're going to kick off um, in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, thinking about confrontation from God. Confrontation from God. I'll read verses 1 and 2. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah at Jerusalem in the name of the, of the Lord God Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The first, the first three ver words of this opening chapter, now the prophets, they give us actually what's going on in this moment, and you can't have Ezra 5 and 6 without the books of the Bible, Haggai and Zechariah. Fun fact, if you wanted to have some fun playing with your gospel community this week, you could read Haggai and Zechariah alongside Ezra 5 and 6, and you could almost map out and create another little timeline in what words God is giving his people alongside as he's encouraging them through the prophets. Now, it's really important that we hear what the prophets had to say 
to God's people as we get to Ezra 5 and 6. Because without the prophets, there's no temple. Without God intervening, there's no temple. And I need to lay a little bit of important context for what's going on right now. Because we hear now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. What is happening right here? Context here is the foundation in Ezra got laid real quick, didn't it? They got exiled out of Babylon by Cyrus, God doing his amazing God-like things to work through this pagan king so that God's people get out of Babylon and then the temple gets laid. That happens really quick within the first couple of years. The foundation is down, an awesome gift of God, a great monument pointing to his love and his grace and his mercy and his power to be for his people. He's established literally a foundation of which they're going to build up their new life building up the temple to have this reconciliation and this reconnection with God. The foundation gets laid quick. But it's not until the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month on the first day, the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltatel. That's the first verse of the book of Haggai, the minor prophet. It's not until the second year of King Darius do you know how long it's been since they laid the foundation of the temple before they actually start getting work to work on the temple? 18 years. 18 years. Now, we heard a little bit last week as to why that took so much time, right? There is some very, pretty good reasons for that. You know, there's a bit of opposition coming in. There's people trying to slow them down. There's people, you know, not doing what they should be doing. And there's people, you know, being naughty towards God's people. But actually, there's more going on than just the oppression. There's also the apathy of God's people in this time. Because you read, the, you read the prophet Haggai and what he has to say to God and what God has to say through him to his people, this is confrontation from God. There's been a slowing down. God's, God has loved them, rescued them, pulled them out, provided for them the fresh start, but they still have not lived the way that they're being called to live. 18 years, 18 years of drifting, distraction, faffing about, 18 years. They saw, they had freedom. The foundation was down. It's obvious, well, we know what we've got to do, but 18 years. I mean, what's going on? They saying, oh, look, it's too hard. Is there too much oppression? Oh, look, I just need to do this other thing now that we're, now that we're out of Babylon in Jerusalem. You know, I just have to give a few more hours to my new job that I've got here in Jerusalem. You know, I just got to just get the job right, just get the job set up, you know. Well, the kids have got a new school now. Kids are at new school, I just got to get the kids settled into school, you know, before we get to work on the, on the temple. You know, the foundation's there. We, we've made a start, haven't we? we made a start. Like, we, we're, on, we're on the track. You know, what is it? Why, why are they stuffing around? God in his love, he gives his people a nudge. God in his love gives his people a nudge. Through the prophet Haggai, 18 years after the foundation is laid, God basically says through Haggai, guys, you are not being blessed because you are not committed to me, the king. You are not being blessed because you are not committed to me, the king. God basically says, why do you think life is not great right now? You've forgotten how to live. Why is it that way? Why is life no good? Well, you've forgotten what you've made for. You forgot to put me first in a place of reverence, honour, dignity and renown. This is what God is saying through Haggai in these opening verses, this opening little word that Haggai has to the people. 
God says through Haggai to the people, 18 years of messing about and not getting on with it. Why does your life suck? He talks about, you know, they fill their barns and it's all gone and, you know, there's, there's drought and there's rain. Like, why is it not going on? He says, you're too busy fulfilling your own plans and you've forgotten my plan. God, in his love, calls them out. Calls them out. Intervention. Intervention. Loving intervention to his people. And God, is his, he's direct. He's so direct. Like I was mining through Haggai. It's like surely in this first little revelation from God, he's got like this little, you know, nice little nugget to just like, <laughs> come on, guys. No, God, 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 he's not interested in saying to the people when he's given them, shown his love, provided the new way, he's not interested in saying, guys, you do you. He's not interested in that. Instead, he says, hey, let me remind you of what you do you leads to. And then let, then let me ask you, how does you do you go for you? Did it go well? Can I just remind you of a few things? Let me just say one word, Babylon. How about deportation? How about disruption? How about destruction? How about death? Now, this, at this point, some people might say, oh, this confrontation, this confrontation from God, this is not loving. God's making them feel uncomfortable. How can God be so abrupt and so confrontive? But isn't love the heart of any intervention? Isn't love the heart of any intervention? When people see one of their friends, someone they love, who's stuck in a self-destructive behaviour, we are willing to take the risk to be pushed away because we love that person so much that we don't want them to hurt themselves. At the heart of intervention is love, isn't it? A loving father will intervene. Some of you know I spent some time in the army. Plenty of fellas in the army, daddy issues. And it wasn't because their dad was too strict, it's because he's, their dad was too absent. And you put them in an environment where there's discipline, and where there's boundaries, and those boys thrived. Because there's clear, a clear way of living. This is what's good. This is where you should go. And this is what God does. Intervention, high risk. High risk, right? Because he's intervened before in his people's lives. And they've been like, screw you, go do my own thing. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, how you doing? Dead, you know. And God says... My people, what are you doing? Have a look around. Look at how this way of life is going for you. Look at how it went for your fathers and your forefathers and your fathers before them. When they lived in the way that they thought was good for them, when they tried to be their or true authentic self without me, how did that go? God shows his love in loving intervention. Confrontation. Whoa, good catch. Do you know that God still speaks intervention into our lives today? Do you know that God still has a prophet today who's willing to personally intervene and caringly call out all of us? Do you know that? Except he's, this prophet, his name is not Haggai or Zechariah. This true and better prophet, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And he comes down, sent from God to us and he says, are you paying attention? 
He says, how are the decisions that you are currently delighting in, how are they going for you? Jesus speaks to the whole world today to, and he asks us to slow down and seriously consider God's questions on our life, God's way for our life. It's the opening words of Jesus in Mark's gospel. He doesn't sugarcoat it. Jesus steps in and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And why does Jesus do this? It's because of his great love for you and for me, for this world. We read in the Bible that God has been patient towards us, that God wishes that no one should perish. No one should perish, but all should reach repentance. The book of Acts we read, Acts 17, the time of ignorance God overlooked, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because, why does he command repentance? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God knows that we all have an expiry date. God knows that there's a time when we have to face up to our actions and the ones that we've performed behind closed doors with no one's watching and the ones that he has seen. And he sends his son. He, God comes down in flesh, the image of the invisible God. And he says, come to me. <laughs> I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He sends Jesus to warn us and to confront us and to intervene in our lives and to call us back as he did for his people back here in Ezra. In the days of Ezra, God spoke through his prophets and he said, you people, you need to honestly reflect and genuinely respond. Take an audit and reassess your lives. He says through, through Haggai, there's a reason your life is feeling so full of effort, yet so full, yet it is so empty. There's a reason that your life feels so full, yet is so empty. It's because your desires are disordered. And you keep, and the way that you're going to go, it's going to lead to self-destruction. It's how Ezra 5 starts. It's how the rebuilding of the temple starts. God's loving confrontation. And it's how Jesus starts with speaking to us too. How do you respond? It's not an easy thing to hear, is it? But what loving intervention is? But we can respond. We can respond. And we're responding to a God who loves us. Responding to go back into a family that's going to take us in. We're responding to live upon a new foundation that has been provided for us to walk in the fresh start with God's love and with God's care. And we respond knowing that the intervention isn't just to make us feel comfortable, but it's to rescue us from what is most uncomfortable. Eternal punishment and death. How did the people of Ezra's time respond? How did they respond to this God calling them out through the prophet Haggai? Well, it says that their response was to rightly fear the Lord. They feared the Lord, which I think is appropriate. <laughs> When God gets up in your grill and reminds you to reflect 
and there's a holy reverence. There's a right respect. There's a corrected posture of penitence. They remember who God truly is and they get off their man-made thrones. They stop playing king and they see God for who he truly is. And as they do that, they remember and they reflect on God's character as king. They know that this intervention just hasn't come in isolation. They reflect on his love and his grace shown throughout the ages. They reflect on the fact that he's been keeping and has kept so many of his promises already. They reflect that on the fact and they remember the fact that he has given them the fresh start, that they are out of Babylon, that there is a free path ahead of them. And they go, oh, look, this intervention hurts. But man, I'm glad it's happened. Let's get on with walking in the change living that God is calling us to. I want to ask all of us today, have you heard the loving appeal of God through Jesus to you? Have you heard the loving appeal of God to Jesus through you? Have you had that intervention moment? Have you taken time to reflect and remember on who God truly is? Have you read and reflected on his love and his grace shown to you? Do you know that God has been keeping his promises and he's given everyone in this world a chance at a fresh start out of our own personal Babylon of sin? And he's done that through the substitutionary death of his son on the cross. Today, you can respond if you haven't responded before. Today, you can trust in the way that God has provided and says is good for you. Maybe today is the first day you do that. Or maybe today is a day like Israel where you recommit because you realise that for some time now, maybe it hasn't been 18 years, but for some time you've been faffing about. You've had disordered desires, you've been distracted. You realise after the confrontation from God that you've been building up your own man-made throne and it's actually time to put God back in his rightful place. Most high king. I want to say take time to think and pray about how you respond to God's intervention through Jesus. In Haggai, they had a month. Take your time. Chat to me when you're ready. Talk to those that you know, that you know love Jesus. And they would love to point you to him, speak with him, so you can make a change that will lead to everlasting life, true life with him. But that's not all God has to say through Haggai. We open up with Haggai and Zechariah. God wakes up his people with Haggai. He's pretty direct. He needed to be. And God started this way in Ezra 5. So we start this way in our sermon today. But God still has more to say. God still has more to say. You see, after seeing God see his people respond, after seeing them respond, he now seeks to reassure. And it's beautiful. We move from a loving confrontation from God to what is now loving exhortation by God. If we want to know where Israel got the strength and the encouragement to continue on in the task of building up that second temple, we get to hear that and, and sit in that as we read what Haggai and Zechariah say that God gets them to say in these next few chapters. Upon their repentance and recommitment, God lovingly also speaks to strengthen and confirm his people in the changed life that they are now going to walk in. 
Zechariah, he pipes up, speaks to the people, speaks to Zerubbabel. He says, God says, return to me and I will return to you. What a promise. What a promise. How many people need to hear that in our world today? We can go around and we can carry the message of Zechariah. God says, return to me and I will return to you. There's some encouragement to build the temple. Zechariah says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. He's with us. God says, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God is on the move. You want encouragement to build the temple? God has roused himself from his holy dwelling. He is in your midst. And if that's not enough, God still has more to say through Zechariah. Those of you who are far off, those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. I'm going to also give you confirmation in this new journey that you're going to take. And this shall come to pass. If you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, if you will diligently obey, he will be with you. Haggai speaks into this as well. Two prophets get alongside the leaders and all of God's people. Haggai says, God says to you, be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Check this out. Yet, be, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. Fear not, for I am with you. God, after calling them back, now also wants to encourage them forward, doesn't he? I am with you. Fear not. God takes their right response of holy reverence, them now having a corrected, corrected their position of which they view God, and then God says, Okay, now that we understand the relationship, let me help you continue to understand the relationship. I'm a God that must be feared, yes, but I'm a God that so desperately, desirously loves. So don't fear. Don't fear the wrong things. Just fear the right things. Just fear me. Put me in that right spot and we'll walk the rest together. So they're now back on the path. They're now rebuilding the temple. A number of, those, number of those words that we just heard, they're coming months after into the rebuilding. Next one, next one, next one. Be strong, be strong, be strong. And the people, they live in this. They're encouraged by this. They find security in this. They're now building the temple because of this. And we know that this is what Israel feel and experience. We know that they are secure in their identity because we see there's this little, um, little interaction where there's uh, Tatanai, the governor, comes and checks them out. Because there's people in the surrounding nations now, they're seeing the temple go up. And now people are curious and inquisitive. Why are those people living in that way? Why are those people living in that way? And you can read as you read through Ezra 5 and 6, Tadanai, the governor, he comes up, he says, hey guys, what are you doing? Like, why are you, why are you building this temple? Check out what their response is. 
This was their reply. We are servants of the Most High God of heaven and earth and we are building the house that was built many years ago. Their first response as to why they live in this new identity, they see themselves as servants of God. Servants of God. Getting to work with Him, work for Him, be a part of His household. What an awesome identity, a servant of God. I don't know what you think when you think servant. Maybe it sounds degrading. We have to remember what the psalmist says, what they sing about through the Bible. Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper at the house of the Lord than you know, anywhere else. So it's like in his presence is fullness of joy. Like you know how sometimes you have a mate and like it's just like, man, he's got a good boss. Why can't my boss be like that? It's like, oh, my boss sucks. Why can't my boss be more like, you know, that guy? And then God, God is the good and better boss. God is the good and better father. That everyone is just like, you get to work, you, you're employed by God? Whoa, I've heard he's awesome. I've heard like he's got a really good salary package. I've heard like the superannuation that he puts into your account is like eternal. I heard that like he genuinely loves you. <laughs> Servants of the Most High God. That's a job that everyone wants. It's not a job that everyone gets. What is your answer when people ask you about the life that you're living when it's clearly for the life of God? How do you respond? Is it one of just relishing in the fact that you're on God's team? Or is it one of drudgery to say, oh, well, I've got to do this stuff because God says. That's not what it's about. Israel could be confident in their countercultural way of understanding who they were. And there's another thing that we can look to as to the reminder of what that was. Israel were confident in their identity. And there wasn't only the words from God, but it was also a significant action of God. Do we know who that was? What was it that they were building on? It was the temple's foundation, wasn't it? It was the temple's foundation. It was the foundation that was already laid. It was the foundation that reminded them that the fresh start had been provided. It was a foundation that was a, a very clear, visible symbol that God was in the business of keeping his promises and would be with them and would make it happen despite all opposition. They were building on that foundation. The path was clear. The stage was literally set. There was this down payment on God's goodness and proof of what God was going to do next. The foundation was there for their new life ready to be lived. We've called this series Rebuild. For Ezra 5 and 6, we could be even think about it as build up. Build up on what God has already purchased and given to you. Build up on what God has done, is doing, and will do. Now, side note here, was anyone at camp? What are they doing to themselves here as they look to the foundation? As they look to this good news down payment of God's awesome action? They're gospeling themselves, aren't they? They can look to that foundation, and that is their picture of pointing them back to their fundamental sense of self. It's a reminder of what God has done. It's a reminder of what God is doing. It's a reminder of what God will do. 
They're gospeling each other with what they're building up on and what God has provided in the way that God has given. Now think about how does that align for us when we think about Jesus? Our new identity, our fresh start, our changed living that we live upon is built in and on Christ. Does anyone remember the series we did in 1 Peter? He is the cornerstone, the foundation. And Christ calls, up, calls us to the very clear task of building up the church, the new temple, with him as the head. 1 Peter taught us, as we come to him, the living stone who, the, who was rejected by men but in the sight of God is very precious, we are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through him. So as the way that Israel looked upon the foundation for their good news and their reminder to continue on in the way that they were to live, they were encouraged by God in looking at what God had already purchased and achieved for them. Who do we look to today? We look to Jesus. The new foundation, the beginning of the new temple, the chief cornerstone. Our fresh start, our new life, it is built upon the foundation that God has provided us. And what we build on that foundation is clear by God too, isn't it? What we build is clear. We build with our actions that are centred upon and honouring Christ. Do you remember the closing statements of Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes? Remember the attitudes, you know, the beautiful attitudes? You know, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Jesus gets to the end of that, of where he just turns the law of God upside down and inside out, the way for us to live. And he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Build your house on the way that I'm saying to build. <laughs> build it with my way, my teaching, my example. And what are we building? We're building up one another. We're building up the church family. We're building up this new spiritual house, the temple of God. Ephesians 2.20, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In, you, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ezra in his time, they're building the second temple, you know, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is that now? Look to the person next to you, to your left and to your right, this Sunday. This is what we build up now. We build up one another. We know Jesus and we make Jesus known to each other and to the community around us. It was the way of the early church. It's what they devoted themselves to, wasn't it? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Bible study, the fellowship, the community, meals, gospel community, Lord's Supper, and prayer. The temple is being rebuilt because of God's relentless love to see it complete. And he has lovingly confronted his people to see that happen. And he also lovingly encourages his people to see that happen with his words and with his down payment of the foundation. And then Ezra 5 and 6 shows us God's love and power in not only 
confrontation, not only exhortation, but in his construction with his people. Now, what is the confidence that the people of God have to keep living their new way of building up? What is their confidence? Their construction isn't on their own. It's with God. The task of the building is the project manager is being managed by God. He's on the tools with them. And God, do we see in these chapters, he is determined to determine the result. It's awesome. We see in Ezra 5 and 6, not only God's power and presence to spur on and to encourage, but to also safely guide and escort. We see God's sovereignty in controlling all the circumstances that are happening. On repeat from Cyrus. Remember Cyrus? God works through this pagan king. For whatever reason, God appears to him and he's like, yep, God's called me to release these people and they can go build the temple. Back in those times, Cyrus actually made that decree. He got written down on a cylinder. You can go see that today. That actual piece of historical evidence. But God only doesn't support them in this physical means of which Darius does a search for and finds. He's like, oh, okay, turns out their story is legit. But check this out. Verses that highlight God's guidance and sovereignty and power in this. 5.5, five, the, the, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop. That's the potential opposition. They did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and the answer be returned by letter concerning it. 6.22, the Lord had made them, his people, joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. Do you hear that? God had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. Ezra wants the world to know, God wants the world to know that it's not by any mere coincidence or fluke that there appeared this magically clear path for the people to build up the temple, okay? Not a coincidence, not a fluke, not good luck. God made the way. I mean, the people still had to persevere and walk, walk that way. They still had to walk the path, but God made the path in his power, by his influence, in his providence, by his sovereignty, he provided it and kept his promise. What does it say in the Proverbs? Um, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or perhaps this is more clear for what's going on in the kings of this day. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's awesome. God steers and softens the hearts of the leaders of the land in their time. That's like so much confidence right there if you're on God's team, if you're in God's family. Like we can't predict how God will accomplish his plans, but we can sure as heck be confident that they're going to come to pass. Like we, we can't change someone, but God can change someone. Pray for those people. Pray for ourselves. Let God's Holy Spirit do the inner working of changing the heart of ourselves or someone else to change the desires, change affections, to change plans. God makes a way that was peaceful enough for his plans to be fulfilled. God makes that way. You know, to get topical for a moment, at the start of an election, maybe you're a little bit stressed about politics today. 
Good timing, Ezra 5 and 6. Good timing. Don't let an election be any cause for concern. Please be wise. Please be thoughtful. But don't be worried. God's ways will prevail. He shows us today in this text that he, has, that he is sovereign and he can soften the hardest of hearts. And what's more, we can have great confidence in our days to live in his will, be his servants and build up the church because I think our day is more like Persia than we care to think. You see, there's a lot of talk, you know, I mean, this was the difficulty of doing 1 Peter as our last series, you know, talking about persecution in the church. We didn't... That we, we're not having Peter's persecution. Let me just tell you that. So is anyone, does anyone, anyone, any member in a gospel community recently been crucified? Thrown to lions? No. Okay. Good. You see, we mentioned at the start of the series, there's Assyria, there was, uh, there was never, there's Syria, the Syrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. The Assyrians, they would come to annihilate, wouldn't they? If you're under, if you're one of God's people, annihilated. We're still here. I don't think we have an Assyrian-like government right now. Then there's the Babylonians. They would do everything they can to assimilate, rip away any sense of identity that you think you might have in yourself and just go along with the rest and be like us. We'll take your best and your brightest, but you're going to be like us. I don't think that's what we see today. What are the Persians? Persians have basically accumulate, accumulate. They're pretty much like, hey, keep doing what you're going to do. Um, but pray for the king and um, look, we'll accumulate some gods, then it should go well for the land. There seems to be some sort of general peace. And I look at our context, we freely can meet on the corner of a highway. The church still has, like, the church, like, the, the church has, like, tax allowances. Like, it's written into, like, the, like, the Anglican church, that we, of which we're, we're a part of. Like, it's, when I first started here, like, they were like, we better allocate some land to the churches. Doesn't sound like um, that. Doesn't sound like Babylonian or Assyrian leadership to me. And I want to point that out because I think so often we think, "Oh, now the persecution's so bad. Like we can't do that." And we get so worried. We get really worried about like the leaders and what's going to happen. We're in a time of peace. We really are. It's not the peace that maybe we would like, but it's a peace that we can work with because. There was, last week, there was still opposition all through this time, wasn't there? There was still lots of opposition, lots of scare tactics, intimidation. They were having to go, writing letters. Remember the formal complaints? We're doing pretty well. And let us start by saying, thank you, God. We will live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on us. And we'll pray that we can continue to live in peace and that we would take this opportunity to make Jesus known but let's not complain. God's way will be done. And God, look, he still calls his people to work in it. He still calls his people to build and to trust and to rely on him. But their success, it's not in their own strength. It's by what God has provided, isn't it? It's not by might, nor by power, but by God's spirit. That's a quote from Zechariah, which has been said to the people at the time. And I think it's the same to us. In this temple rebuild, God's relentless love to see it complete has been in his confrontation, his exhortation, 
also in his willingness to be with them in the complete construction. And lastly, we thought about at the start, what's it like to have a front row seat? These are some of the things we can see. How is it that they feel? How is it that they feel? Ezra 6 closes with the emotional disposition that God's love brings to his people. Ezra 6.22 They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. The Lord had made them joyful and had turned their heart of the king of Assyria to them. So he aided them in the work of the house, the God of Israel. God made the people joyful. He made the people joyful through the words of the prophets, through the confrontation and the challenge. There was a joy in his love shown to them through the work of his power. There was joy in what he was doing and what he was providing, what they could see he was doing through the witness of his plan. There was joy in their future ahead. They weren't working to something that was going to be misery. It was like, it's only going to get better from here. (laughs) Exiled, building. Wow, come on. The result of intervention means their new identity. It means their new way of living. It means they're escorted. It's a celebration of God. It's joy in God and it's a proclamation of God. Like there's such an awesome little verse in verse 16. It talks about that there's actually people that are getting on board with God's people that aren't even Jews. But they're like, you guys have got something that we don't. And it's joy. It's, It's a joy, a joy that surpasses all understanding. And I think our experience of Jesus, a Jesus identity should be one that is seated in and focused towards joy Celebration that's now and also celebration for in the future. It's a praise for all that God has done. Would not perish but have eternal life. Praise for all that God is doing, sanctifying us by the power of His Spirit and will do the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. Now, I'm not saying that we have to have this constantly volume turned up, extroverted, energy-filled, jumping about, looking like a larrikin, I'm so happy, joyfulness. But it's a peace that transcends understanding. And even in the times where it's hard, and that's there, read the Psalms, it'll happen, there are hard times, but it's always with a vision towards something better. It's the beauty of being in God's family. It's always with a greater hope, a living hope, Jesus who's alive. We see them sharing a meal here. They celebrate the Passover. It's this beautiful picture, I think, pointing forward to us that we, as we share in the Lord's Supper, we remember the gospel, the good news of our salvation in Christ, His his broken body, His shed blood. Oh, wow. I'm saved. I'm safe. I'm adopted. I'm forgiven. I've been shown mercy. I'm a part of His family. They celebrate with this meal, and I think it's also a meal that points forward to the extra celebration, isn't it? The last supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb. So even in the moments where life is tough, and maybe one day there is a Syrian annihilation upon us, to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, I don't know of any other faith where you can sit beside someone's bed and watch them take their final breath with a smile, apart from a faith that's in Jesus. That's joy. That's beautiful. I don't think there's any other faith where someone can can actually be in really, really hard times, so hard, but yet then say, look, you know, consider it pure joy. 
Jesus' teaching, Jesus' disposition, and what we read in the Bible is that the identity of God's people is one of joy. What does Paul say? Romans 14, the kingdom of God, being a citizen in his kingdom, being a servant of the king, it's not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you know that joy? Do you want more of that joy? Keep looking to Jesus. Look to that foundation of your life. Look to all that God has done. Look to all that God is doing right now. Look forward to all that God will do. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing the heart. God has made known to us the path of life. And in his presence, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. God has put more joy in our heart than when others' grain and wine abound. Psalm 4.7, God has put more joy in our heart than when others' grain and wine abound. Do you know what that means for a surf coast context? God has put more joy in our heart than our neighbour who has a three-storey house and a Range Rover. Be glad... Sorry if you have a Range Rover. They're, they're beautiful cars. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 32. So church, friends, what are you going to share with, you, what are you going to share with your friends this week when they say, hey, how, how was your weekend? What did you get up to? I would encourage you to, to say something like, you know what, um, I was at church and I thought about what it's like to have a front row seat to the character and love of God when you're a follower of Jesus. And that's, I get to see that God is loving enough to confront me in my apathy. He's loving, enough to me, he's loving enough to encourage me in the way to work with me. And in all of this, as his invisible spirit patiently es escorts and walks with me and calls me forward, I can be so thankful and I can look forward to the final destination of complete and true joy. That's our hope. That's our future. That's our king. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.